I'm Joe. And I'm Josh. And this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where, for the month of October, we're browsing our video store shelves to choose some spooky staff picks. All right, Josh. This is the last of our weekly October spooky picks. And you, for this final day, have gone with Idle Hands. Uh, Why have you chosen this particular movie? The reason I picked Idle Hands is because... I just think this is a fantastic film, and I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm anxious to hear what your thoughts are. But more specifically, I remember this. So this is like totally my favorite genre, like this late 90s, early 2000s teen scream horror. And I don't know, I just... Another big one that reminded me sort of of the feel for this was Bride of Chucky in in the way that it's sort of this... I don't, I don't want to say punk rock because that sounds so pretentious, but just sort of this edgy, dark, gothic type rock schlock horror that I just absolutely love. And actually, more specifically, like this was sort of my introduction to horror at this point in my life. This 99 is when it came out. Yep. Did you see this in theaters or... I didn't. I'm pretty sure this was a, the video rental at this okay. point, because that would have probably been one more year later, right? 2000, that it would yeah. hit the market. And I would have been a sophomore in high school. So I just remember, like, because this is also a big year in that time of my life where I was going to the video store regularly and starting to just rent everything and anything we could get our hands on. You know, the blockbuster era, you cruise around, you find something great to watch. But um, yeah, this was one of the first films that I'd never seen anything like it that was simultaneously terrifying, but also hilarious and a weird sort of blend of romantic rom-com teen scream. I don't know. I can't, I can't really like pinpoint the genre. Is this your first time watching? This is my first time watching it. I kind of blew this movie off because it's a stoner comedy at the time and through now really hasn't been my thing. What, what, when you saw this film, what was your opinion of that kind of stoner comedy and maybe stoner culture in general? I don't think I was expecting it when I watched it because again, this would have been just a based on the cover of the VHS so, or, well, I guess in this case, DVD. It would have been DVD, not necessarily VHS. They definitely marketed as looking like a horror film because you see Seth Green with the bottle sticking out, out of his head and the yeah. scary green hand on the cover. But, I mean, to me, honestly, even that green hand, it always reminded me of that Goosebumps cover. Yeah. From R.L. Stein is like, stay out of the basement. Is right. what it was? Yeah, yeah. With, like the plant <laughs> hand or whatever yes. it was. Yes, So... I think that was part of my appeal. And then, yeah, I watched it. And again, not having much experience with horror, I was like, I mean, we'll get to it. But that opening scene, I was like, holy shit, this is intense. And then it makes like a hard left into that stoner sort of feel of a film. And so, I don't know, I guess, honestly, if I think back that far, this probably would have been the first stoner film that I watched because... I never really got into it. You weren't hanging out with the stoner crowd and that made you want to see this movie? No, not at all. I mean, <laughs> unintentionally, I hung out with this kid that, you know, I, I talk about a lot. I went to private school. But then once we got into high school, there was this one kid that was in my class that knew a lot of these public school kids. Um, and we would hang out occasionally on the weekends. And this is where I, I think I started seeing a lot of this horror stuff too. Like specifically remember him putting on Bride of Chucky, which I'd never seen before. But then also films like Kids, which really fucked me up oh, for life because yeah. I was in my bubble and that completely destroyed the bubble that I watched of <laughs> Innocence. 
I will say, though, like the aspect of stoner comedy in this film really makes some of the behind the scenes information pretty fascinating, like how this got put together. We'll get into it. But it's, it's more than just, a, oh, we want the stoner crowd and it's funny to people who are stoned. And blah. it was definitely a studio and test audience intervention. I cut off my hand and it's going to kill you all. It's true. His hand killed us yesterday. Yeah, it sliced me up real good. All right. So just some background on this movie for the box office. This film opened on April 30th, 1999. Uh, it does not do well. Uh, the number one at the box office that week was Entrapment with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Sean Connery. This opened at number six, and it made a total of $2.3 million. There is a reason for this, because if anyone was in high school around that date, you may recognize... The time period of being one single week after the Columbine school shooting. Oh, shit. And kind of like how 9-11 was too, where a lot of movies that had any remotely kind of things that audience might object to after this kind of massacre, they pulled it. Well, Idle Hands decided to stick it through. But this results in it being attacked specifically by name. Like Senator Joe Lieberman did point this out as... An example of a movie with teen violence that is influencing teenagers to do school shootings. So the reputation of this movie is immediately in the toilet. And this is why I feel it became more of a cult classic on video, because it's just just got bulldozed over by bad press, which, I mean, poor everyone involved in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for the cast and crew... I know we talked about a little about the cast and this, which I feel is the most notable thing about this movie. But first, the director, Rodman Flender, he's notable because he got this mainly off the basis of directing Leprechaun 2. But he also directed the scare episode of Dawson's Creek, which is my single favorite episode of Dawson's Creek. Oh, it's the right. I did the, read that. It's the Halloween episode where they have the, are they doing the seance or a Ouija board? And there's just a lot of hijinks. I think Pacey's bringing a woman over and then, but she has a boyfriend and he, I don't know, but it's a fantastic episode. I think it's one of the better Halloween based TV episodes to watch. So I guess if you're looking for TV things to watch on the big night coming up, this is definitely one to put on the list. Well, and can I point out one thing too, just since we're talking about the director? Because he had some great commentary on the DVD, but one of the things that you can 100% tell is that he is a dedicated horror fan. Mm. Like I didn't look really into his filmography to see how he did after this, but one of the things he does throughout the film on the commentary, which I found really interesting and I wish I would have paid more attention or wrote down the exact films that he referenced is that he name drops a lot of films that he grew up watching as a kid up until his, you know, adulthood and full on like points it out saying, oh yeah, like this scene here, this was a direct influence from Suspiria. He said like Argento was a huge influence on the aesthetic of the film with the colors and even like he said that opening scene with Anton's parents, the wallpaper and everything, he said that's like a total lift from Dario Gento. Huh. There's also a shot from Tenebra. Oh, um, yeah. It's after he, Anton kills Mick and you see him like with the bottle in his head and he like falls forward. I guess that's, that's like a lift. But one of the last things I wrote down that I just thought was really great is he says he basically wanted to celebrate all the horror films that he grew up with. And so that was... 
part of his inspiration with this film. If you listen to that commentary, it's great throwbacks. And even to the point of like some of the content that they're watching on the TV, because there's a lot of media throughout this film when they're watching music videos, TV shows, etc. So to get into the cast, main actor is Devin Sawa, the 90s heartthrob. He was in the stuff Casper, Now and Then, Wild America. Did you follow Devin Sawa? Did you have a favorite movie? Oh, yeah. He was like probably my number one. In the battle of Jonathan Taylor Thomas versus the Devin Sawa era, like Devin Sawa was always my favorite. (laughs) Now and Then, Always and Forever. But I mean, honorable mention also Little Giants. I do actually really, 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 really like him in this film. I guess one minor little thing of trivia is that a lot of this physicality of this is all Devon Sawa. And I think that's why I like this movie so much. Even more so, I should say, now watching it is because I forget how physical it is. I mean, it's just something yeah. you don't see in films today. You know what I mean? That, you know, from a singular actor... I mean, yeah. usually there's a lot of effects and et cetera, but like one in particular that they said is completely impressive is that scene when, you know, the cat goes across the street and he's looking for it. And then the hand basically like pulls him up onto the porch and he oh, does right. like a yeah. somersault yeah. into the front door and starts ringing the doorbell. They said that was all him. There was nothing that like pushed him up. It was all, and you can tell it's all one take. It's not just like they're cutting it. And so another really, really impressive one that the director was saying, he had a really hard time watching the scene where Devin is trying to chop off his hand with the meat Mm. cleaver because he said that Devin refused to use a rubber cleaver and insisted on using a real one. Oh my God. So in that scene when he's literally chopping really hard on that block and his hand's moving all over, he said that that's a real meat cleaver. Oh, which is God. insane. So there are other little fun tidbits like that, but they said it was all it was all Devin. He deserves all the credit in the world. But apart from him, uh, his two best friends are played by Seth Green, who's in everything, and Eldon Henson, who I know him as Fulton from The Mighty Ducks, but younger listeners might know him better. Uh, he played Foggy in the Daredevil uh, Marvel Netflix show. Well, and he's also in She's All That, which is right before Idle Hands. We also have Jessica Alba as the love interest and Vivica A. Fox. And then two minor roles. We have Fred Willard popping up in the opening scene as Devin Sawa's father. And also the dog, Devin Sawa's dog, is the same dog as the one in Road Trip. Well, and I have I have some uncredited. Well, there may one maybe. Oh, th- there are. Yeah, I I noticed there's a few familiar faces and uncredited roles. But yes, go through. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of other people that we can point out. The one most notably for me was Jack Noseworthy, who plays Randy. He's the metalhead neighbor next door. But also, he was in Event Horizon. He plays oh. the, like baby bear, whatever the one that gets sucked into the black portal and then is totally like mute the entire movie. He also is Eric Dittmeyer, the neighbor in Brady Bunch. He's like the mean, basically asshole older brother that lives next to the Bradys. So I remember this because I had a huge crush on him growing up. And the other three, Mindy Sterling, who -hmm. has a bunch of credits. She's in Austin Powers, is the most notable one. She plays Frau Far. Bisna, she's like basically Seth Green's mom in Austin Powers. She has just a quick cameo, which I didn't even notice till they were saying in the commentary. It's like a blink and you miss it moment. She's in the bowling alley when Randy's just talking to his friends. And then Tom DeLonge, the lead singer of Blink-182. I didn't even catch this either. 
you know, because I, I didn't see him. Is. I didn't go back to. Yeah. Yeah, he's in the um, burger jungle scene when Devin goes to the drive-through window mm-hmm. and he's like break time or something like that, and Tom DeLonge just turns around and is like cool and then walks away. But um, two more. This is the biggest one that I I had to laugh at, and I thought for a second they were joking, but I definitely rewound it just to see if I heard it right. So the scene where they're outside the burger jungle and Randy's talking to this girl and, you know, trying to pick her up. There's these people in the background and there's a guy in a blue jacket. And I tried to pause it, but of course it's a DVD, so it's not crystal clear and I can't tell. Mm. But apparently Ricky Martin showed up oh. to set one day <laughs> and just wanted to be in the film. And I honestly felt like when he was telling the story, like Seth Green was just full of shit. But like nobody contradicted him and nobody laughed. They were just like, oh, see that guy in the blue jacket in the background? That's Ricky Martin. Huh. Uh, and then the last notable one for me was Christopher Hart, who plays the hand. Like oh, after right. it's cut off, he oh, plays yeah. thing in the Adams Family. Yes. Made a career out of just being the hand. I'll also point out two others quick. Kyle Gass of Tenacious D is also in Burger Jungle. And of course, The Offspring as the band in the final sequence. See, lots, lots of people in this movie. Lots of people. And I, I do want to point one other thing out too, since we're just getting into it right now. There are three queer connections to this film also. So obviously I mentioned Ricky Martin's in the film. He's openly gay. Jack Noseworthy, who this blew my mind because I had no idea that he has always been an openly gay actor. He has been with his partner since the early 90s. And then also there's the scene where Devin Saw is making that sandwich and he's like transfixed on this music video of like this sexiness going on screen. Mm-hmm. It's a music video. It's called I'm a Pig by the group Two. I, I would have never known this information until I listened to the commentary. But the director goes on to state that that music video has apparently an explicit version filmed by Minnesota's own Chichi LaRue, a very famous gay porn star director. Huh. So if you don't know who Chichi LaRue is, everyone go ahead and look that up, but not on any work computers. Uh, well, to go back to Seth Green for a moment, he had a quote. The AV Club was talking to him uh, many years ago about this movie, and his explanation really puts this movie into a new light and makes it make a lot more sense to me, which we'll get into in the description. But he says... The best thing about this movie was that everyone working on it had a different mission statement. We all thought we were making a different movie. Me and the boys, the other actors, Devin and Eldon, were convinced we were making a high drama with some comedic elements, and we tried to make our relationship as lifelong best friends believable. The director, Rodman, was attempting to make a throwback Italian horror film like Dario Argento flick that you said. The writers really wanted it to be Heather's, and the studio was listening to the test marketing and saying that if this movie didn't have... They really wanted the zombies to be cuter and have more wacky antics, and apparently all the kids in the audience thought that there should be more pot smoking, that pot should save the day, and somewhere, somehow, Jessica Alba needed to get her top ripped off. And that's how the whole new ending got shot, where she's up in a car lift and gets her midsection ripped off and pot saves the day, which we'll get to. But there are parts of this movie that I'm like, this seems weird with the rest of the movie. I'm like, oh, mostly because of test audiences. It seems that a lot of this was changed. And the director on the commentary was very adamant about saying, like, a lot of people whine and complain about the test audience's process and getting that feedback. But he said he actually welcomed it and enjoyed it. And in fact, like he said, the best comment that he ever got was there was a part that said, please list your favorite part about the movie. And someone wrote in the titty part. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, God. And he said, I'll never forget that. Uh, well, let's check in with our buddy Leonard Malton, see what he had to say about the movie. Ooh, I'm nervous. He gives it <laughs> one and a half stars. He says, lazy, dope-smoking teenager Sawa discovers that his right hand is possessed and a killer. He, or it, murders his parents and his two best friends, then he tries to remedy matters. Horror comedy, with ideas reminiscent of many other films, notably Evil Dead 2, is doomed by too many crude and genuinely tasteless jokes. So shockingly, I don't think Lenny was the (laughs) main audience. Well, yeah, not a fan, but also probably not the target audience for this movie. Anything else you wanted to share? No, that's it. Now now that we've heard what uh, Mr. Moulton had to say, we can get into... The summary. Okay, so the film opens with, like I was saying, a music video sequence, essentially. A creepy little title sequence that segues into the house of my dreams, this two-story house that's decked out in all these Halloween decorations. We have Mr. and Mrs. Tobias, played by Fred Willard and Connie Ray, who are getting ready for bed. And when they turn the lights off, they're startled by the message, I'm under the bed, which has been painted on the ceiling in -in glow-in-the-dark paint. So Mr. T looks under the bed, but there's no one there. He's convinced that it's probably their son, Anton, playing a prank. But Mrs. T is freaked, and she forces her husband to go investigate. Shortly after he leaves, we hear a scream. So she leaves the bedroom to investigate and ends up slipping in a pool of blood. And another side note from the commentary and the director is they said there is actually a scene when she went down the stairs. I guess you see Fred Willard's dead body, and... You just get a shot of like him being pulled really fast off screen. Hmm. They said that they cut that because they thought it was more creepy for her to just find the blood and not see a dead body. Hmm. So she slips in the blood and she's horrified. So she rushes back to her bedroom, terrified out of her mind, and attempts to dial 911 in the slowest possible manner. <laughs> I don't know how you felt about that, but she's like dialing with one thumb, it feels like. But before she can finish, the landline's ripped away from her. A hand appears from underneath the bed, pulls her under, the bed shakes, and then blood just splatters across the floor, which is, again, my introduction to horror, like this fucked me up the first time I saw it because I was not used to seeing a lot of horror gore. And mm, I don't know, sure. like, I'm, I'm interested to see what you thought, Joe, like, when you're watching this, because this is the opening scene and you're going into it thinking, oh, stoner, comedy, horror. Yeah, like, this opening scene isn't funny. It's a legit horror film. And, yeah, when she gets sucked under the bed, it's just like an obscene amount of blood that just goes splashing out. So it's pretty ridiculous. It's pretty intense. Yeah, it just starts very serious right off the bat. So the next morning, teenage dirtbag Anton, played by Hadi Devansawa, wakes up. In the Attic to the song Peppy Rock by BTK, a.k.a. Birth Through Knowledge. Now, do you, do you know this song, Joe? Did you recognize it? I did not know. Woo, woo, that song, we'll have to play it <laughs> over the credits. But um, I swear this is in a bunch of late 90s, early 2010 films. Hmm. At the very least, it's got to be a Never Been Kissed. Because I swear to God, I've heard this <laughs> in other films. I just can't place it. But it sounds so familiar. And in fact, I had a really hard time figuring out what it is because it's not on the soundtrack. Which Idle Hands, by the way, has a very great soundtrack. But is there, is there a vinyl? Do you know? There is not. I did. Oh. You know, of course. You know me. I of course did a deep dive in this, but I don't see one yet. But Mondo, do you hear me calling Mondo Records? This would be a great release. 
So anyway, there's a good gag of him waking up with these headphones on and he switches them out and he's like, oh, this song. And then like puts on basically a Walkman with the same song playing and heads downstairs. He attempts to smoke weed out of his inhaler, which is hung around his neck, but it's completely tapped out. And Anton, while he's doing all this, is completely oblivious to a news report that clues us in that a killer has claimed two more victims, twins, at a fast food restaurant. So in a pair of boxers, a sweatshirt, and some slippers, he crosses the street and tries to score more weed from his friends Mick. And is it just Nub? I think so, because these are based on the SNL skit of Eddie Murphy as Buckwheat. Like, that's where they got the names from. I did hear that in the commentary. I guess I just wasn't paying close attention. I just heard them saying something about Eddie Murphy, and I was like, what? But for anyone listening, I'm not a complete idiot. It's just spelled P-N-U-B, played by Eldon Hansen. So Anton passes his metalhead neighbor, Randy, who's working on a shit kicker truck out front. But he finally gets to his friend, Mick, and Nubs. They blow him off, telling him that all he does is get high and sit around his parents' house all day. And Anton then reflects on how he hasn't seen his parents in a few days, but is immediately interrupted when he hears a motorcycle go by. So he rushes to a nearby window as crush Molly, Jessica Alba, passes by. I don't know. I had a mixed feelings about this scene. I don't need to keep getting off off topic, but it's just kind of awkward. Her on that bike, she's like very straight and she's got her little it helmet on. Awkward. It's not even really like a motorcycle, is it? Is it just like a... No, it's like a little motorbike. Vespas? Vespas, yeah. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Uh, he notices as she drives by that her lyric book is in the middle of the street and he heads outside to return it. And he attempts to engage with Molly but ends up having an awkward exchange and instead and leaves. So this is another awkward scene. So I, I like it. It's really effective. But we cut to Anton pushing a shopping cart, which looks like he's going down like a fog-filled alley. Yeah, in the middle of the day. Yeah, so in the middle of the fog. day. Like it's a close-up shot of him with the cart. So you're thinking, oh, he's in like a parking lot. But then all of a sudden he's just going down an alley and you're like, oh, did he steal that cart? I don't know what's going on. And it's really foggy, which they did say in the commentary, they just lit leaves on fire. So it's actually <laughs> smoky. I don't know if it's supposed to be. And there's sort of this buildup because he hears a noise and there's a minor jump scare by officers McMacy and Officer Ruck who mistake him for the killer. And they essentially reveal that they were seniors when Anton was a freshman and start hassling him for ignoring him. Them when they were in high school, which is kind of funny because they're like, why didn't we ever get asked to hang out? And he's like, you guys were dorks. So they get pissed and exact their revenge by writing him a ticket for littering. So we see the ticket and then it just match cuts to him basically rolling a joint with the paper. Like, so it's just laying on the table in front of him and he's trying to attempt to smoke nutmeg and oregano because he's desperate to get high and he got the tip from Mick and Nub. And so while he's rolling the joint, that's where we have the I'm a Pig by the Band 2, directed by Chi Chi LaRue, playing on the TV and he's totally transfixed by it. But he lights the joint, it makes him violently ill, bringing him to the kitchen. And then this is another great physicality moment that the director was saying is that there's a scene where Devin shoots liquid joy into his mouth, like the dish soap. And they said that was actually joy dish soap and he insisted on doing it. So anyone that dedicated is amazing because <laughs> they said he totally improv that. But he washes his mouth out and then immediately tries to start making a sandwich. So, you know, we get some shots of some sexiness going on screen because he's, he's jamming out to the music video. And Anton is completely oblivious to this giant 
kitchen knife that he's making the sandwich with that has a blood stain on it. And it's pretty gnarly. I don't know how you feel, Joe, but pretty like, gross. yeah, <laughs> he's like dipping it into a big jar of mayonnaise and uh. it's just mixing like this blood and mayonnaise on a sandwich. And then he slaps the meat and the lettuce on it and takes a big bite. And only then after he takes the bite, does he see the blood on it and he immediately spits it out. And after that, he gets the sight of his cat playing with this like removed eyeball, which again is a pretty gnarly visual. I don't know how you feel, but it's just kind of like pawing and nibbling. On it's the- like one of those things like, oh, this horror comedy was like, oh, this is gross. It <laughs> is. Like- it's, it's definitely, they do a really good job of like this gross out horror. Like even in the way Devin, or I should say Anton, looks as the film goes on. He's like disgusting looking. So Anton is at this point immediately freaked out and convinced that the killer's in the house. So this is another great gag. I don't know how you felt, but this This, is where the the comedy comes in. But go ahead. (laughs) uh, This is my single favorite moment of the movie. So, yeah, there's just like a shot of a hallway, right? And then the dog is getting pushed into frame with him like right behind him. As he's pushing the dog from room to room, Um, He gets closer to the front door and he sees a silhouette outside and immediately freaks out. And that's when he runs up to his parents' bedroom, hides under the covers, and he gets there first. And then the dog follows him and he's like, come on! And then like pulls the sheet up over both their heads. And then there's this really like close-up shot of the two of their faces just next to each other under the covers. It's great. But he eventually ends up peeking out and notices the message on the ceiling that was left for his parents, freaks out and runs back downstairs. And that is where he bumps into two of those Halloween dummies. Each have pumpkins over their heads. They fall over the pumpkin smash and it's revealed to be his parents' corpses. And it's all just really effective. Like just like I said, just bing, bang, boom, like one after another. This whole sequence is fantastic. To top it off, even though we think it's over, it just, here's the cherry on top, from my opinion. Mick and Nub enter the room and immediately gasp. And you think that they're like taken aback by the dead bodies on the floor of his parents. But they immediately rush past Anton's parents and are transfixed on this music video on TV called Pop That Coochie by Two Live Crew. This leads Anton to basically be like, guys, snap out of it and look, my parents are dead, which leads Mick to knocking over a fast food bag with two dried up ears that spill out. Are are they fried? Weren't they fried? I don't know. They kind of look like it. So it's in like a fry bag. But yeah, it's two left ears, which Mick points out, which, you know, we are now associating with the twins that were killed at the fast food restaurant. And Mick slowly kind of starts putting two and two together as he matches a piece of fabric that's clenched in Anton's mother's hand to a cutout in Anton's shirt because he's got a big rip in his shirt. And then immediately Anton reveals the -the glow-in-the-dark paint that's on his hands, which is funny because it's like, where's the black light downstairs? I I don't understand how they're seeing that. But anyway, and Mick properly freaks out. So he tries calling 911 a lot faster than Anton's mom. (laughs) And Anton violently grabs the phone from him, reaches for a broken bottle, and then we hear Mick scream off screen as Nub tries to flee. Anton chases after him, forcing him to hide in the basement. And while he's cornered, Anton explains that his hand must be possessed and gives Nub the opportunity to escape. But before he can get to the top of the stairs, Anton grabs a saw blade and decapitates Nub. Immediately after that, Anton is depleted. He sits on the couch. And there's this another great physicality scene with him going to war over the remote with his hand. Now, how he does all this is amazing. 
Because he's literally like throwing the remote across the room, grabbing it with another hand, trying to change the channel because himself, his body and his hand are fighting over what they're watching on TV. But while that's happening, Anton's cat Bones starts pawing at him. And then, of course, the hand gets pissed and then grabs the cat by the tail and swings it really, really fucking hard. And then you just see it fly out the window, go all the way across the street and land in the bushes. Anton, you know, is concerned about the cat, runs across the street, looks for it outside Molly's house. And that's when his hand becomes possessed. And that's that, again, that physicality that I was talking about earlier, where he does this whole stunt of like flipping up onto the porch and then ringing the doorbell. And Molly answers, and the two have a brief exchange. She invites him inside and thanks him for returning her lyric book. He manages to charm her before the hand aggressively grabs her ass, which that was... An interesting choice, too. Again, I don't think they would get away with that today, but... Yeah, this is definitely the scene that has aged the worst. <laughs> I guess Jessica Alba's character in general is kind of weird, because like she's answered the door in super skimpy outfit, and then, yeah, he's having this like aggressive killer hand flirting. She's like, oh. And, of course, immediately is transfixed on Anton, who is has a bloody shirt, and like he's completely in disarray. It's like, mm-hmm. uh... I agree with you. It doesn't age well because she's this pretty independent, tough rocker girl, right? Who's kind of no nonsense. But then when her back is turned, he the hand just grabs onto her butt like really hard too, and like doesn't let go. It's not just like a, it's a slap, and then it's just like, oh, that was unexpected. He's like literally holding onto it and she he has to pull his hand off of her and she's like wow i'm impressed not a lot of guys would just go for it and i just <laughs> it's like uh, i don't i don't know and then they start making out and then this too it's just like insane so anton is on his back on the bed she's on top of him and the hand like slaps over her neck and just kind of like across her mouth and is almost attempting to like strangle her so anton keeps having this physical comedy of pulling the hand away and then it's sort of like thinking and then it does it again and you even hear her being like ooh like it hurts <laughs> and you're like any modern woman would be like you got to go. Like, no. Like, this is over. I don't know what your problem is, but fuck off. But she just kind of, like, pulls back after he gets the hand off of her. And then he immediately starts tying the hand up and ties it to the headboard. And she just goes, ooh, kinky. And then it's it's just really awkward. But then there's a cut, and she basically just kicks him out before her parents come home. But before he goes, she does ask him to the Halloween dance, and he accepts. So, back at Anton's. We cut to him burying all the bodies in the backyard, which, again, we're not going to think too much about this, but my my only thought was, how's he going to explain all this? <laughs> yeah. What was yeah, the motive with the four he, bodies? How's he getting out of this one? Yeah. And the backyard is all dirt. Like, I don't, I don't think I saw <laughs> any grass. It just looks like it's a total dirt pit. But while he's trying to eulogize everyone, McNubb and his parents. He hears Mick talking and he rushes over to the dirt. He's startled because Mick and Nub essentially rise from the ground as zombies. Anton's knocked out cold with a shovel. And then we cut to the next morning, which he wakes up to Peppy Rock again. (laughs) And it's like deja vu, Groundhog's Day all over again. Um, And he's convinced it was all a dream. So he goes downstairs and he's startled to find the zombified Mick and Nub on his couch. 
Anton's hand starts acting up, causing him to explain that it must be possessed. Because they're like, what's the deal with that hand? And he's like, I don't know. It has a mind of its own. I, I really like their interaction. From this point on, earlier it's like, oh, stoners, whatever. But I really like their kind of answers to everything that's going on around them, where they're like, yeah, like he killed me. And I was mad about it for a while, but I got over it. <laughs> Well, and we d- I don't even explain in the summary, but we can say it now. As I do love, he's like, so what happened to you guys? And he's like, well, I don't know. Like when we died, we saw this bright light and all these angels' oh, right. voices saying, come, come to the light. And we just thought, fuck it. It was really, it was just too far. Yeah. <laughs> so they turned around and that's the explanation of why they're there as zombies. So um, while they're all chatting, make a nub suggests Anton learn more about possession and the devil. And who else do they know that knows more about the devil? than Anton's neighbor, Randy. According to them, that's what they're, they're just saying because he's a metalhead. So essentially, he must know everything about Satan. But this is a good pairing with our other trick-or-treat film, too, by the way. Clearly, I have, yeah. I have a thing a thing for these occult films. <laughs> but um, Anton visits Randy, finds him at the fast food restaurant where the twins were murdered. And Randy tries picking up a woman who visits the memorial site, but it ends up being cock-blocked by Anton. And it's another stupid, fun, funny gag. They're like, Anton's trying to control the hand and he shoves it in his pocket and it's like freaking out. And it looks like he's trying to touch himself. And I do love that Randy's just like playing a little corner ball or something like that <laughs> while he's like shaking his pants and the girl's just like disgusted and walks off. But um, Randy's pissed because he's like... Oh, you ruined my chances with this girl. And he storms off and ends up desecrating essentially the memorial site because he drives over it with his giant truck and then just immediately goes through the (laughs) drive-thru. And Anton, desperate to talk to Randy, rushes into the fast food restaurant, throws on one of the employee-like vests and hats, and rushes to the drive-thru window, which this is that scene where we see Tom DeLonge for a hot second. He gets to the drive-thru window and essentially tells him what's going on. His hand's possessed. He needs to find out more about the devil. And essentially, Randy just says, here's our shout-out to the title of the film, that he needs to keep himself busy and that idle hands are the devil's playground. Oh. So... We cut back to Anton at home, keeping himself busy with some knitting needles. He's watching the music video for Dragula with Mick and Nub. Oh, yeah. And the two officers we met earlier show up and see the zombified bodies inside when they look through the window. So at this point, they're like, oh, Anton's the killer. And they rush inside to arrest him. And Anton's hand activates and immediately kills both of them. It's like they're trying to arrest Anton, which is crazy. I don't know why they would do that. But um, Anton's trying to keep his hands busy with the knitting needles. And he's like, no, 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 cuff me. And they're like, drop the needles. No, cuff me. Drop the needle. And then he ends up jamming one of the knitting needles right through his ear, which is brutal. And then the other cop, Anton grabs his taser and tasers him right in the face. So this sends Anton into a complete tailspin and he heads to the kitchen and chops off his possessed hand. Mick comes in, rips the iron off the wall that's plugged in and cauterizes the wound. And then he takes Nub across the street to get a first aid kit. So while Mick and Nub are gone, Anton freaks out because he realizes the hand is still alive. And he manages to trap it in the microwave and turns the microwave on to another great, disgusting uh, bit, in my opinion. And this is something that always stood out very vividly in my mind whenever I watch the film. The hand is like twitching and pussing and blistering, and then it essentially goes limp. And fun fact, apparently the director was in a very impatient mood and wanted more gore for inside because it used to just be blood in the microwave. So they looked through the cabinets to see what they had on stock and found 
can of cat food and then just literally flicked cat food all over the inside of that microwave. <laughs> so that's what some of the exploding meat is. Huh. But anyway, at a bowling alley, the next scene is at a bowling alley where Randy meets Debbie LeCure, which I'm not doing her justice, but it's just too herky-jerky to keep cutting back and forth between her scenes of how she got from where she started to this town. While she's sitting there with Randy, she reveals that she's a druidic high priestess responsible for finding and killing the laziest fuck-up, her words, whose hand has been possessed. And I do love that Randy's just like, oh, cool. Like, he doesn't even, like, again, we don't spend any time being like, well, what? Like, he's just like, all right, rolling with it. And he, in fact, says, you know what? I know exactly who you're looking for because he remembers the conversation he had earlier with Anton. And so they load up in her Airstream and Hall asks to go find him. Back at Anton's, Molly arrives dressed as an angel. He distracts her from coming inside and asks her to meet him at school. She agrees and leaves. When he returns inside, he finds that Mick and Nub have let the hand escape while they're trying to heat up frozen burritos. And while they're doing this, we also get a very, very disgusting scene of Mick getting annoyed that Nub's head is like being carried around everywhere. So he it's something that you use for grilling, I believe. It's like a wooden handle with a big metal fork on the end. Yeah. And he shoves it into the body and then smashes the head on top of that and then uses duct tape around the neck. But before he uses the duct tape, Nub bites into the frozen burrito as it's reheated. And this is like one of the most disgusting scenes. Which they said <laughs> they use cinnamon applesauce for this oh. effect, but it literally just oozes out of his neck. And oh. that's when makes like, oh, that's disgusting. And so that's when he tapes it up. Uh, Anton's properly pissed because they're fucking around and they let the hand out. And he searches the backyard and finds a message, she's mine, written in blood by the hand and ends up stealing Randy's truck with the other two and heading towards the dance to save Molly. This is one of my favorite scenes too, and it's not because it's the titty scene. Um, I, I just, this is another really effective, terrifying scene in my mind, but we're outside the school dance and two of Randy's friends who we met earlier at the bowling alley, they're dressed in these kiss costumes, which are fantastic, right? It's this guy and the girl. They're making out in a steamy car and they roll the window down and the hand crawls inside. And then as the guy's feeling up the woman, the possessed hand, crawls up the middle of her chest and there's like at some point three hands on top of her body and she then is like wait a minute and looks down and starts screaming the hand chokes her out and then eventually smashes the boyfriend's head against the window and this is another huge blood splatter that we get that's like whoa what the fuck was he doing like the hand what how uh so our trio then arrive in the truck and find both bodies and head inside and inside the gym halloween parties raging as Joe mentioned earlier, the offspring plays. Is this the part, I forget where it shows up specifically, but they have Jessica Alba dancing. Yes. And the way, I can't explain it. <laughs> We're going to have to put up a video or something on social media. The way she's dancing is so bizarre and doesn't fit the music being played at all. Uh, yeah, because the... I want to be sedated, right? At this yeah, point. Yeah, they're co- it's the offspring's covering that. And it just sticks out. Like, what's going on? She She's essentially, like, twirling her wrists, like, starting from, like, 
her midsection all the way up. I'm like doing it right now and no one can see, but she's like twirling her hands around each other in like circles with her wrists all the way up into the air. And then also kind of like swaying from left to right. It's really interesting. And the closest thing it reminds me of is there's a scene in the movie, How to Deal with Mandy Moore, where she's doing something similar, which always seemed very odd to me. But the only explanation I came up with that movie is that just like most movies, they say like, okay, dance, but they don't have any music playing. Oh, yeah. But doesn't make sense for this film because I can imagine that the offspring ahead of time would have known that they were playing I Want to Be Sedated unless they filmed this separately. I mean, I swear we see the band and it pans over and we see her dancing. So regardless, if you're said like, all right, just dance, Jessica Alba won a unique direction. <laughs> Maybe again, well, yeah, like you said, the test audience is there like, okay, you want more elbow here? You fucking go there front and center. You can't miss her. She's like basically waving her arms so everyone can see her. I mean, I do think this, like her dance is one of the highlights of the movie for me too. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's iconic. We'll have to remember that Joe when we, um, next time we're in public, but, (laughs) but anyway, so the officering's playing, I want to be sedated. She's doing her dance and the trio arrive and split up to search for the hand. And Nub is eventually hit on by Molly's friend, Tanya. Oh, you know what? And let me back up. I'm sorry. I didn't include this in my summary, but I think it's worth mentioning. There's a subplot or not plot even just a, a quick scene where we see the principal in his office while all this, you know, partying is going on, the principal's in his office and he's having a fight on the phone. And you think that he's talking about like a student or something. And he's like, this can't be, check it again. And he's like, no, 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 you have the wrong number. My credit card number is this. And then immediately you get clued in on the fact that he's basically doing like phone sex. There's this whole gag of like him talking to him. He's like, I can feel you. It's like you're in the room. In fact, you're touching me now. And because the hand crawls up his leg and eventually like bursts through his crotch. And then like we just cut and we hear this screaming. And that's where Anton, who's in the hallway, rushes to the office and finds basically the dead body. But we also get a pretty gnarly scene of the hand sticking its fingers in an electric pencil sharpener. Basically, he's grinding down the bone in the fingers, I think, part Mm -hmm. of the bone in the nail. And it's essentially, again, really effective in my opinion because it's pretty gnarly. So um, after that scene, while they're split up, we get this great kind of interaction with Nub interacting with Molly's friend Tanya, who's dressed like the devil. But it's pretty fantastic because Mick is not having any of this because I feel like Nub drops down his sort of guard and stops being so like pretentious. I don't know if that's the right word because they're being kind of sarcastic the whole time about how the school dance is hokey. Oh, and there's this, been more genuine. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden this girl hits on him and he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love this. This is so much fun. And they start dancing. And at some point there's this great gag because they're like making out. And Mick is like, oh, God, no, that is disgusting. No, 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 you're dead. He's like, yeah, but she doesn't know that. Um, While all that stuff is kind of going on, Anton ends up running into Debbie who attacks him with this druidic knife. And he explains to her before she goes knife happy that he cut off the hand causing her to back off. And so Anton learns from Debbie that the hand plans on sacrificing an innocent soul at midnight and tells them that it's got to be Molly. And so he goes back to pursuing her. And it should be pointed out because at this point they're like, well, it's just like nine o'clock. We have plenty of time. But it's like the druid time. (laughs) That's right. Pulls out the watch and they only have six minutes, which I feel that is a... 
a detail they probably shouldn't have added into this movie because it really yeah it's more than six minutes it, there's no very way. much it's very much more than six minutes well and that too is another great fun fact is that seth green said that he tried to so they they created that druidic watch it's like it was something that they created for this movie and he tried to actually get it but he said it ended up getting donated to i don't know some museum or something i don't know if it's still on display oh man i want to see an idle hands exhibit somewhere yeah well i don't know if it was idle hands (laughs) exhibit i think it was just like a movie prop for like some sort of film related museum sure but back at the party anton jumps on stage warning everyone about the hand nobody takes him serious until the hand locks everyone in and the band starts playing and eventually drops down from the ceiling. And this is like, I remember the first time I saw this, I, did you see this coming at all? Like it shocked the hell out no, of me, but I this loved is it. Crazy. This is probably the best, I don't know, gore scene of the movie. Yeah. Maybe. Cause basically the lead singer from offspring starts saying something or singing and the hand drops down on top of his head, rips his whole scalp off and then sends everyone into a panic. Molly and Tanya end up escaping through a vent and realize they're being followed. They end up stopping above an industrial-sized fan, which is hilarious. That's at a school. But this is another very distinct memory for me when I watch this for the first time. But Molly jams the fan with one of Tanya's shoes and ends up using the whip that she has as part of her costume to drop below. And so a scared Tanya is essentially attacked by the hand, strung up by the neck, by that whip from her costume. And then the hand removes the shoe, causing Tanya to get sucked into the fan and killed. And this is another one of those blood splatters that we get. That's just just totally gnarly. Yeah. So Molly tries to escape, but this is another thing that I always had a problem with in this film that made no sense to me. If the hand was in the fan and then killed her, Then when Molly runs down the hallway, she goes into a room, but essentially there's just like a ceramic plate that comes out of nowhere and like conks her out over the head. Yeah, well, the hand, yeah, I feel the hand is in there moving things because this is at the part. It hasn't gotten the hand puppet yet, but I feel something else moves. It just, it was strange to me. Like, why why was that above the door? I don't know. Yeah, that's the first scene of the new ending, which... Uh, we can get to. Yeah. But I guess, remember, from this point on, this is... That theatrical cut. So, uh, meanwhile, Mick and Nub are kind of following Molly and Tanya's trail. And they find what's left of Tanya. And Mick makes a great crack because he's just like, oh, man, what a waste. He's just like, if you still want some, you could go back and get a piece. Which is just so insensitive, but so fantastic. Uh, so I, I guess I didn't I didn't go into detail here, but essentially what happens is Anton gets to the art room that Molly was in because I believe it was an art room, right? Yeah, and that's where he's chasing down the hand, and there's all these creepy puppets, and they start kind of coming to life and moving their heads. And how does Anton get knocked out? I'm trying to remember because he gets in a fight with the puppet, and then does the puppet just knock him out? I think it gets away. I think it just gets away because it hides behind sort of this puppet show type cardboard box and he like tackles it and then there's nothing there. And eventually it cuts to the shop room scene, which we find Molly tied to the roof of a car and it's slowly rising. And right above her on the ceiling is like this giant bloody pentagram and the hand activates the lift, you know, rising the car to inevitably kill Molly. And Nub and Mick 
arrive and try with Anton to pull the handle of the lever. Basically, the hand is in still one of the puppets, wedging itself on the lever, and they're all three of them trying to pull it off, but it's too strong. Nub and Mick get distracted because they see this incredibly crafted three-person bong that's made out of, like, I think it's like a carburetor or something, and has like a seatbelt. It's insane. And so they decide to blaze up because... In Nub's word, I need me spinach. Um, And that gives Anton an idea. And so Anton takes a hit, but exhales exhales up the skirt is what it kind of feels like, like into the puppet's uh, dressing where the hand is, causing the puppet's eyes to essentially... This is kind of a a dumb joke. I don't know if you thought it was funny, but the puppet's... I did not. Yeah, it's like that bad stoner humor where like the puppet's eyes turn red and then roll to the back of its head, and then it falls to the ground, essentially indicating, oh, he's so high, because I think Mick Evans was about some one-hit shit there or something like that. And so Anton stops the car in the nick of time. Debbie and Randy arrive just as the hand reactivates, attempts to lunge at Anton, and Debbie ends up throwing the sacred dagger at the hand. It goes right through it and pins itself into the chest of Mick. And in an anticlimactic finish, it wriggles for a second and then puffs into dust. And the reason I say anticlimactic, because Mick even says that literally. He's like, that's it? I was expecting more hell and fire and brimstone, which they actually indicate in that commentary that you watched to Joe, both alternate ending. That is actually their attempt to make it bigger and badder. Yeah. So from here on out. Anton helps Molly down from the car. They kiss, but Nub accidentally bumps the lift lever. It drops on top of Anton, leaving his fate ambiguous. And a white light illuminates, and Mick and Nub decide to follow the light into heaven, and they look back and ask, Anton, you coming? So then we wake up. It flashes into a hospital where Anton's in a full-body cast, and Molly's feeding him some food. And she tells him she can't believe he blew off heaven to kick it with me. (laughs) And they kiss, and she leaves, and Mick and Nub appear and tell Anton that they are both his guardian angels. And when they exit, uh, they flip the light off, revealing that old familiar message, I'm under the bed, glowing on the ceiling. And in the hallway, we hear Anton screams as Mick and Nub reveal that they wrote the message on the ceiling. And that's the end of the movie. But is it? Well, I wrote the alternate ending, but Joe, if you want to take it away, by all means, go ahead. Oh, okay. I guess I can. I mean, I'll preface saying I think it's kind of a bummer with the new ending they put in in the theatrical, like, because it's easily my least favorite part of the movie. And knowing that test audiences were demanding this stuff, like, the stoner humor is so upfront. I think it actually doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie because it was never that explicit, I guess, before. Like, they'd make the stoner jokes and whatever. But this is so goofy. And... I imagine they couldn't get the guy back to play the hand because the hand is almost completely in the puppet at this point. Yeah. And it's just like so, it's just dumb. I really, (laughs) like it's not, I don't know. I feel like this felt to me like that this was slapped in and like this doesn't seem like the original idea. And it's not. In the alternate ending, which was the original, and I will point out, you can find this on YouTube if you don't have the DVD. It's introed by the director and it is super weird. Like the camera filming him is set up really high and he's in like an editing booth <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. he's, he's talking up to the camera, but his lines that he's saying are clearly printed out in front of him 
off camera. So he keeps moving his eyes down to read it and he looks uncomfortable. So it really, and he's so insistent multiple times on how the theatrical ending that they eventually went with is the ending that he wanted. But the whole package comes together like, it really feels like the studio has trapped you and forced you to say this. <laughs> yeah. So Well, and it's funny because it, to me, it really felt like when I watched it, it felt like the early days of DVDs, like where people weren't used to doing special features and extra content. And so it felt like, I don't quite know how this is going to go. Yeah. So it just, the vibe is weird to begin with. Well, essentially what it is, is it's just... The film completely does away with the shop scene. And so we don't even see that scene where Molly goes in that art room and gets something dropped on her head. It cuts from her dropping down into the classroom and then she is running into basically the school pool area and essentially is hiding out on the high dive because we see the, the hand creep in and then she's laying flat on the high dive. And I think it's like a shot from above. So we see her laying on it and the hand down below. The hand eventually catches up to her, kind of forces her off the end of the plank and she's sort of dangling over the edge. And simultaneously, I believe that's when just the portal to hell opens, right? Like, do we yeah, don't get like any... The water kind of disappears and it's this giant portal to hell. Is that kind of match up with the timing then too? Is it is it just because yeah, they hit the six minute mark, quote yeah, unquote? Yeah, this, this actually adheres much more, I mean, probably not perfectly, but much more to the six minutes because they're in the shop class for a long time yeah. and nothing's happening. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the weed smoking scene alone is like... Yeah. Just like two minutes. So, um, yeah. So there's the portal to hell that's opening up in the pool. Like all the water drains out and we get these great effects, which I think they did say that they like tried to add in some of these effects for the DVD because it was unfinished originally. Oh, yeah. They had to use or reuse some soundtrack too because that wasn't finished either. So That's right. So she's dangling over the edge. The hand drill, like, you know, with those tips, those, those pointy tips is digging into her fingers. And then Anton, Debbie, and Randy arrive. And this is one of my favorite parts of the scene because I thought this was creepy as fuck is these hands like shoot out from the wall, the gym walls and like grab onto them and pull yeah. them in. This felt very much like a Nightmare on Elm Street kind of thing. Yeah. And it's way more like hellish and scary in my yeah. opinion. And Debbie and Randy kind of have their hands tied or like pinned in, but Anton manages to break away and he takes Debbie's knife to attempt to kill the hand. And he, he ends up, I think, I don't know if it lunges at him or if he just ends up stabbing him, stabbing the hand, but he does end up taking it out. And I don't think there's a huge explosion from that. It starts either. on fire and then so the diving board is on fire too a little bit. Okay, see, and I don't remember all these specifics, but it, it's pretty great. Because then he does end up killing the hand and pulls Molly up to safety. But here's the kicker. You think everything's going to go back to normal, but the portal remain, is remaining open. And Debbie explains that it won't close without a sacrifice. And so Anton, in the final climax, like, you know, we're supposed to believe, like, this is a loser, slacker, nobody who won't do shit for anyone in the beginning of the film. And as it goes on, he's slowly pulling away from that and growing and becoming more responsible. So... He ends up sacrificing himself and jumps into the portal. But the thing that really shocked me is like, you think like he's just going to go into the portal and then disappear? No, like he jumps through the portal, it closes, but then there's no water in the pool and you just see his body just slam into the bottom yeah. of the pool. And it's like, holy shit. I thought it was going to be like a drag me to hell situation where like he's getting literally drug into like hell and you never see him again. But no, this is like he jumps in, it closes, but then he smacks right into the bottom of the pool. And yeah, 
But then that's when the white light appears again, like we saw in the shop scene where Nub and Mick basically walk towards the light, turn around, say, you come in, Anton. And then it cuts to that big white flash where he's then in the hospital and getting fed by Molly. And that ends the same exact way. What's funny, just taking the whole film into account, so he's in this hospital and, hey, things are going to be good. He's still not getting out of, like, six dead bodies, two of which are police officers at his house. Yeah. So... Yeah, how do you explain that? Is Debbie just yeah. going to be like, oh, no, officer, I, I can vouch for him. He was fighting evil. Like, was no, she, evil. she's evil long gone. Her, her and Randy are having the um, ritualistic sex or whatever <laughs> she says at the end of the film. So, yeah, that's that's Idle Hands. I was really actually excited about it because I hadn't seen it in so long. And like I said, there's just so many little unique details to it that I just, I love so much. So does it hold up for you? I know Devin Sawa is the highlight with his physical comedy we've talked about, but oh yeah, the film 100%. as a whole. And I, in fact, like I said, I, I think this is a person that like deserves way more credit. I'm so glad to see that he's doing way more. Not okay. That sounds like he ha- he never did anything, but I'm so glad that he's still an active actor and getting this recognition that he deserves even now. Because he's active in Chucky. I just saw him in Hacks. He mm. was in another, I think Black Friday was another recent horror film that mm. he was in. And so I love that he's active in the horror community and he's not ashamed of it. And he's a good actor. Yeah. I mean, he's been working since he was a kid. So he knows his shit. Um, how about you? I mean, I do like it. I especially like once Mick and Nub are dead, I really like their interactions and their interactions with Anton. Like that, I feel, is the strongest point of the movie. That and the dog. And like we said, <laughs> like you said, like the physical comedy, the effects in this movie. I would say, you know, I don't think the alternate ending's perfect either because that, I feel, goes the other direction that there's, the, it's completely devoid of comedy, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, I don't think they ever found that happy medium, but it is what it is. I think I enjoy most of the movie. Oh, I, I do have one more, one more question for you, Joe. Did you watch this with your wife? Oh, yeah. Okay, because I'm kind of dying to know what she thought. And if you don't remember at the top of your head, it's fine. But we've had... We've had Devin Sawa conversations at length in the past. Yeah. So. Yes, Devin Sawa was one of her big childhood crushes. Uh, Casper, more than anything, I believe. Now and then. I know she was in the now and then, too. Her opinion was close to mine. That I think before we started recording this episode, she commented, too, is like, oh, weird movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, like it's totally all over the place. And there are good parts, but there are parts that are like, huh. But she had so, never seen it before? She had not. And uh. I will say... I mean, maybe you disagree, but if you're caught up on the handsome looks of Devin Sawa, I'm not sure this is the movie that highlights it the best. I mean, he's kind of a, as they uh, explain him, a greasy stoner covered in blood for the majority of this movie. So I don't know if you get your Devin Sawa kicks. You know, I got to say, Joe, when we were roommates, this was exactly my type of guy (laughs) that I was really looking forward to. So that doesn't clue you in. I don't know what does. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what it was about it, but there was always just something about... You and Jessica Alba both had that type. Yeah, I guess. I guess I just want someone to grab my ass and try to choke me out (laughs) for a hot second while totally greasy and reeking like wheat. Well, we've hoped you enjoyed this month of spooky staff picks and have a delightful Halloween in a few days. Uh, We'll be returning to our usual biweekly format next month, Uh, So now let's return to challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store to select a film in under one minute. Uh, And do remember, if a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the video Dropbox and defer to 
what's in the basket. So Josh, it is your challenge to choose. I'm not going to lie. I really, I had a good one, but it was horror based. And so I was like, I have to get away because our poor listeners. <laughs> we we need a little up break. With us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to give everyone a brief, some breathing room. So Joe, are you ready? Oh, geez. It's been a while. I'm going to be rusty. All it's right. been a while. And I hope, you know, this will be thinker, but I think it'll be, it should be fairly easy. Okay. Okay. So the section of the video store you must choose a video from is a sequel with a dramatic recast. And what that means is it can either be one character or multiple characters, but it should be a film that is a sequel that recast one or more of its main actors. Huh. I know that can, that can be kind of a difficult question. Would it be better to give you an example or should I? No, I get it. Like where, yeah, there's plenty of movies that there's a side character or the main character where they continue on with it. Should I start the clock? Yeah. You know, this is hard to look up lists for too, but mm-hmm. all right. I, I knew it was going to be a kind of a thinker, but are you ready? Sure. Time starts now. So there's plenty that I don't want to choose. Like things pop up and uh, like the Matrix sequel, uh, there's the Dark Knight that recast uh, Katie Holmes. Oh, do the Batman movies count? <laughs> does Does Batman count? I don't know. Those are kind of loose, though. Um, Hannibal Hannibal would be an interesting one. One on my mind is the Mummy Three. But oh gosh, now that I've said Batman, that the same things are popping up in on lists. I know. Uh, I'm really curious. Oh. Oh, I think I know what I'm going to choose. All right. Um, and I think I might know what your basket pick is. Three seconds. Uh, okay, I'm ready. All right. What did you so, pick? Uh, so, I mean, I was thinking Batman Forever because that's one of my childhood loves. But because I know you love it and I barely remember it, I think I'll go with Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Does that count? It does. Oh, my God. <laughs> Joe. Okay, so I'm so glad that you picked that because here's the thing. I'm not going to lie to everyone. I had a really hard time with this one because I had three. I had three to pick from, and I was really struggling with which one should be in the basket. But ultimately, I was going to pick Charlie's Angels full throttle as the basket pick. (laughs) Nice. So we are on the same page because I didn't want to clue you into that to say that. But like another one you might be kicking yourself over is the Bond films do count too because technically they recast all the bonds essentially that's true but can i tell you the three that i had on my list? oh yes absolutely so charlie's angels full throttle that was number one on the basket but my backups because this is the one that always always makes me think of this when i think about it is mortal Kombat annihilation because they completely recast on your blade they completely recast oh, johnny, right. johnny cage johnny like, K- and they kill him in like five minutes yeah in five seconds it's just like and the reason that was on my mind recently is because i just watched the original mortal Kombat with my friend katie but one that i totally had forgotten about teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 because they recast april o'neill oh dang that's right oh i never would have thought of that but that one would have been awesome too yeah I saw that on a list and I was like, shit. And three. I mean, three would be a oh, rough yeah. watch. Oh, yeah. And I've never seen three. When it came out, I know I was obsessed with that film. I don't know why. Like, going back to it is, it's not great. Well, and can um, I say that I'm really glad that you didn't pick Never Ending Story 3? 
Because technically oh, that yeah. counts too, because <laughs> they recast Bastion again. So uh, with all that being decided, uh, please visit Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram or at Video Dropbox on Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our social media pages. Until next time, please remember to be kind and please rewind. <laughs>